Hello again, my listeners. It's Katie here for a new episode of Conversations About Mental Health History. Today's topic is the Topeka Insane Asylum. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, I say that more to me than to my listeners. Between the holidays and coming down with COVID, I've had some downtime. I'm still not back to baseline, so that's why my voice isn't where it usually is, but hopefully you'll be able to bear with me since I have no clue how long this crud will stick around. But all right, enough excuses. Let's move on. I haven't had any questions in a few episodes, but one of my listeners suggested that I talk about the use of illegal substances in mental health treatment. I hadn't considered this as a topic, but I'll definitely look into it. Please send me some suggestions on topics that you're interested in, and I'll add it to my research list. All right, so moving into the Topeka Insane Asylum. So let's move in to the actual meat of the episode. In the second half of the 19th century, Kansas's established psychiatric hospital, the 10-year-old facility named Osawatomie Insane Asylum, was experiencing a massive issue with overcrowding. In 1870, Kansas legislators met and they decided that a new psychiatric facility was needed to address this issue. However, the state did not want to provide the land or funding for it. The city of Topeka and its county, Shawnee County, donated money for the project alongside of 80 acres of land for the construction of the hospital. The hospital was then approved in 1875, and it was constructed according to the Kirkbride plan with two wards that held 135 beds. Additionally, there was an extensive tunnel system beneath the campus. While I did not find the reasoning for this system in my research, I know from my personal experience as a psychologist in multiple state hospitals that tunnels were typically created for patient movement. Um, when there was inclement weather, so they can go below ground um, and still get between the two buildings. So Topeka Insane Asylum opened on June 1st, 1879, under the direction of Dr. D.B. Eastman. A heads up, we will hear the name Dr. Eastman multiple times in this history, but unlike previous episodes, this is, in fact, the same person. He had three tenures as superintendent, with breaks in between for, quote, political reasons solely, unquote. The first patient was admitted to the hospital and was diagnosed with chronic mania and was discharged a little over two years after the admission. Just two years later came the purchase of 100 more acres for the expansion of the hospital. A third building was constructed in 1881 because the hospital needed more beds. However, the hospital was already overcrowded in 1890 when they had to turn away 95 patients. Turning into the next century came numerous rumors of abuse, neglect, rape, and prolonged confinement. In 1901, the name was changed to Topeka State Hospital. This name change was actually enshrined in the legal code KSA 76-1201, which stated that all laws that reference the, quote, insane asylums, unquote, will be applicable to the newly renamed, quote, state hospitals, unquote. So that also extended to the Osawatomie State Hospital. 
Two years later, Kansas passed a law which forbade marriages between people who were unfit, including people who were described as alcoholic or feeble-minded, and illegal marriages resulted in a fine or prison time. In 1904, Topeka State Hospital became a training hospital for nurses, where women started taking care of the, quote, male insane, unquote, after which, quote, force and intimidation were superseded by tact, kindliness, and intelligence, unquote. This training program ended in 1928, actually. In 1907, the tubercular building was constructed to separate out patients with tuberculosis from uninfected patients. And a few years later came the passage of a law that violates human rights. In 1913, compulsory, that is, you know, involuntary, sterilization was legalized in part due to Kansans, quote, widespread fears of a flood of degenerates that would engulf the state, unquote. There is no indication as to what this specifically meant. However, quote, the first law required institutions to examine all who were identified as belonging, quote, to the established categories of, quote, habitual criminals, idiots, epileptics, imbeciles, and insane, unquote. Following these evaluations, the evaluators' systems, quote, then made recommendations to the district or state courts, which made the final decisions regarding sterilization. This law contained no provisions for the court processes, such as hearings or appeals, unquote. Because of the need for multiple levels of approval for this to happen, a new law was passed in 1917 to eliminate the court's involvement in approvals of sterilizations. Now, what do you think this resulted in? Obviously, this drastically increased the number of sterilizations done. This law instead created a board made up of decision makers from the institutions and the Secretary of State Board of Health. Quote, under this law, the inmate was given advance notice of his hearing at which he was allowed to provide a case for defense. After studying the case and hearing the arguments, the board had the final authority in the question of sterilization, unquote. Point blank, this is eugenics, the idea of creating an ideal population by eliminating a person's right to procreate. Nowadays, most countries outline this practice as a straight-up violation of human rights. But this is not the last time we're going to talk about Kansas's role in sterilization, so we're going to put a pin in this topic for a few moments. Ultimately, these people were sterilized against their will. They had no recourse and no way to have their own bodily autonomy. And that is something that I think is a terrible decision to be making for another human being. In 1918, Dr. M.L. Perry became the new superintendent and quote, under his reign, the hospital became a place where the management took almost as much pride in agricultural pursuits as in services to the mentally ill. The hospital had one of the finest dairy herds in the state, Many patients spent their working hours in little huts of driftwood, tin, and cardboard on the edge of the hospital acreage tending gardens. The patients gave little thought to leaving the hospital, unquote. The following year, the requirement of the court ordering admissions ended, thus removing the courts from yet another decision at the hospital. There's a little bit of a jump here in the timeline, and we are back to the sterilization conversation. In 1927, the Supreme Court of the United States made a decision in Buck v. Bell that ruled that compulsory sterilization is, in fact, constitutionally sound. And as a result, quote, public approval of sterilization increased greatly 
causing an enormous rise in the rate of sterilizations in Kansas, unquote. Again, put yet another pin in that. There's another jump in the timeline, and now we land in 1948. A new superintendent named Dr. Paul Davis was appointed, but his appointment was not positive, and instead, multiple physicians resigned and multiple supervisors threatened to quit, quote, to protest the level of patient care, unquote. An evaluation of the hospital was completed under Dr. Davis's rule, and the results uncovered, quote, the deplorable snake pit conditions in the state hospital, unquote, which was described as, quote, one of the most inadequate in the country, unquote. The report included recommendations that Topeka State Hospital be altered to be a training hospital in an attempt to increase staff. Of note, at this time, the consensus included more than 1,800 patients who were being cared for by 125 untrained staff, one nurse, and two physicians. So personally, having a caseload of 15 to 20 patients max is cognitively hard for me to separate out all the pieces. So I cannot even imagine that ratio and how those patients get adequate care. Topeka State Hospital did, in fact, follow the recommendation of becoming a training hospital in 1949 and started the education and training of the staff for all of the different hospitals, well, mental hospitals in Kansas. Two years later, the hospital opened an adolescent unit, and in 1959, the pre-adolescent unit opened. In 1952, a psychologist wrote an article about the work program that was housed at the hospital. I wanted to take a few moments to kind of talk about the interesting points from the hospital. So, at that time, patients were being used as chief labor around the hospital. Quote, many are worked long hours without consideration for their physical or psychological needs, unquote. Also, they talked about the different ways that patients are cared for. Quote, in attempting to obviate the scars and traumata produced by such disregard for human rights and feelings, there is a tendency to literally smother the patient with love and attention and to emphasize a wide variety of recreational activities and the developments of hobbies. Although not without its beneficial effects, this was not uniformly successful, unquote. The hospital, along with a lot of hospitals at the time, did use work programs. You know, the patients worked the, um, the gardens, they did jobs around the hospital. And this psychologist wrote, quote, it was recognized that a work program properly administered constituted an important therapeutic tool. Work is fundamental to living. We are taught at an early age that pleasures must be earned and work therefore becomes an important in superego development and in the avoidance of feelings of guilt and inadequacy, unquote. So because of this re- uh, report, decision makers at Topeka State Hospital actually created a formal industrial therapy program. The psychology department did a job analysis, you know, that's uh, an evaluation of what is going on, what are the requirements for the jobs, and listing it all out very clearly. And the psychology department really focused on, quote, the, the psychological climate of the work setting and its therapeutic implications, unquote. So what the psychology department was looking at were the characteristics, you know, including the intellectual requirements of the job the fit with the patient and their ability to do those jobs, and also the emotional values of the job. You know, does the job cause boredom? Is it frustrating for the patients? Or is it rewarding to do? 
The data was gathered and the psychology department created manuals. And these manuals were given to psychiatrists and to other staff members who are working alongside the patients to help staff who are responsible in making those decisions um, to assign patients to the industrial activities that they would fit in and when there's vacancies. Interestingly, though, this report and this article, it did not mention if work was voluntary or mandatory for the patients. But the reasoning was that by doing the work of the hospital, patients can get transferable skills for work once they are discharged. Now, as a little side tangent, I like programs like this. I like programs that help patients learn skills, earn money, be able to spend their own money that they earn. Um, Obviously, there has to be a lot of different assessments to make sure that, you know, there's safety there. But I know that with how risk management happens, you know, the ability for patients to do work has becoming less and less of an opportunity, unfortunately. All right, back to the hospital. In 1960, the state of Kansas actually split the hospital into four smaller units, which governed the different parts of the state. Though it was interesting, I read that each program had its own rules and different ways that the program was run. So I imagine that that kind of um, messed with going in between the different programs. The following year in 1961 was the year that the last compelled sterilization was performed. So by the time that these sterilizations ended, Kansas was ranked sixth in the nation in numbers of sterilizations done. In total, 3,032 patients were sterilized, with 58% of those being male and 68% of those who had mental illness. There's quite a bit of a jump in the timeline yet again, and now we land in the late 1900s. Sorry, y'all, but we're there, having to call 1988 the late 1900s. But yeah, in 1988, the hospital lost its Medicare and Medicaid accreditation after the hospital purposefully omitted two patients from the inspection. Four years later, in 1992, an activity therapist was murdered by a patient who was hospitalized following being found not guilty by reason of insanity for the crime of aggravated battery. This murder sparked a lot of conversations about how much information about previous aggression is shared with treatment providers since this patient had reportedly been physically aggressive when he was housed at Kansas's maximum security hospital. And I see this as an ongoing debate. How much of a patient's history do you share with people? How much do they need to know for their safety? How much of that information is biasing? That's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother time, if that's even something that's interesting to y'all, but just something to kind of keep in, in the back of your mind. Three years later in 1995, Kansas actually changed their mental state defense from not guilty by reason of insanity to the mens rea approach. So I won't go into a lot of details here, but basically Kansas's new standard for the mental state defense is that if you have the ability in your mind to form intent, no matter what the intent is, you do not meet criteria for lack of mental state. Now, if y'all are interested in a whole episode on mental health defenses, which I happen to be an expert in as a forensic psychologist, let me know. Maybe that's a conversation we can have. Also, during the 1990s, there were a couple of patient riots, which required intervention by the Topeka police, who responded to the riots with shields, tear gas, and police dogs. 
Ultimately, Topeka State Hospital closed on May 17, 1997. Closure did not bring the end of the issues for the hospital, though. In 2001, the state of Kansas was sued by a psychologist who was sexually assaulted by a patient a few years prior. While the jury believed that the assault happened, they were unable to come to a consensus whether or not the state was responsible for the attack. More specifically, the jury was deadlocked on whether the state was liable for not disclosing the perpetrator's history of sexually assaulting female staff at the state's maximum security hospital. So like I said earlier, how much information is shared with treatment providers in another facility? Another thing to consider was the actual usage of safety measures. In some psych hospitals, there are these devices on keys called screechers. You pull the pin out and it starts wailing. I had this at my last place of employment. My keys set it off all the time. They are ear splitting, but that's the point. The point is when you hear this happen, that means somebody's in danger. But the investigation found that the screechers that Topeka State Hospital had were not actually used between the murder of the activity therapist in 1992 and the rape of the psychologist in whatever year that happened. I don't have that written down. So while the hospital had them, they were not distributed. They were not used. They were held in uh, desks and nobody carried them. Unfortunately, the hung jury meant that the psychologist did not get civil payments as a result of the state's negligence. Now, we can go on about my opinions on things on how it should have went, but ultimately, the security measures were not used. In 2009, the Topeka Public Schools purchased the abandoned buildings, and all of the buildings were demolished by June 2010. If you go to the location now, you'll find that Hummer Sports Park now inhabits the space. There is a graveyard on the grounds of the former hospital, which houses 1,157 graves, with only 16 headstones acknowledging who is buried there. In 2006, two granite monuments were erected on the grounds of the park, and these monuments have the name of every patient buried in the cemetery. Family members can request records from the state archives, though Diagnosis and other medical information like that is, are not going to be included. There is a website which has a search function which you can type in the name and it'll tell you it, where in the plot that person is buried. So for instance, I typed in a very common last name and the information that came back was the patient's name, register number, the death date, the burial date, the row, grave, location, and whatever notes they included on there. So if there's somebody that you know who had died there, you can search it and possibly find information on their grave location. All right, y'all, and that's where I'm going to end it today. As always, I thank you for joining me for another episode, and please consider following me on Instagram so I can get your questions, thoughts, other feedback. Um, my handle will be in the description of this podcast. Um, I'll see y'all in the next one where I'll cover who knows what. I guess we'll both find out together. Until then, be safe, enjoy the holiday seasons, and I'll see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. All research used in this episode was done by me and is included in an annotated bibliography located on my Google Drive. The link is tinyurl.com backslash conversations about mental health. I designed the logo on canva.com. The intro and outro music is royalty-free, is named Abstract Feature Bass, was created by Cube Sounds, 
and is hosted on pixabay.com. 